Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you that we can trust you. And Lord, we praise you because as we worship you, you meet our needs. And you, you show yourself to be enough. And we pray that you would continue to do that even in these moments. We pray that you would enable us to continue to worship you, to know you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. No props this morning, sorry. You missed it, Denny. I do have a chiasm, though. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 74. And this is what we're going to see in this psalm. So here's what I think this text is communicating to us. And I think that this main point can serve at the same time uh, to inform our understanding of this passage and as our overriding application. In other words, what we're to do with this passage. Worship, worship is the solution to our problems, the answer to our questions, and the catalyst for confident prayer. I'm going to say that again. Worship is the solution to our problems, the answer to our questions, and the catalyst for confident prayer. As we look this morning at this psalm, um, I, what I want to try to do here, here at the beginning is, is walk through it, sort of overview it, and, and, and point out the features that I think tell us where the movement of thought shifts. And in other words, help us to kind of get our bearings in terms of the flow of thought in the psalm, and then point out the things that I'm seeing that, that are pointing us to that, those changes in flow of thought. Because when we do this, uh, you know, even as you listen to me, if you know where one section ends and the next section begins, well, you know what I'm trying to say in that first section, right? And, and the psalmists do the same thing, but they don't necessarily enumerate things or, or put a chapter heading or, you know, they don't have verse numbers. They didn't insert a space between, at the end of one line before the next line like the translators have, have done in the translation. The way the psalmists do this often is they'll repeat key words and phrases. So... Look with me at, at verse, verse 1 of Psalm 74, where the psalmist begins saying, Oh God, why? So he's addressing God with the question, why? And then look at verse 2, where he says, Remember. So he's calling God to remember. Now look down at the end, at the end of this psalm, and he says in verse 22, Arise, O God. And, and that arise, O oh God, it sort of corresponds to, O oh God, why? Right? You've got God, and then a question, and then God, and then a request. And then look at what comes right after that in verse, verse 22 there. Remember how the foolish scoff. So this, this seems to bracket. The beginning and the end seem to correspond. O oh God, why? Arise. But both places, remember. That, that seems to mark the outer frame or the outer ring, if you will. And then look back at, at verses 4 through 8 and just 
Just notice how in verse 4, there's a reference to your meeting place. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. Then look down at verse 8. They burned, at the end of verse 8, they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And that, that, those two references to meeting place seem to mark verses 4 through 8 out as a unit. So the, the use of the same term marks those verses out. And all the stuff in verses 4 through 8 is about what the enemies have done to the temple. And in the logic of this psalm, the temple is connected to the covenant that God made with David. And the reason for that is, if you remember, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wanted to build a temple for God, didn't he? He wanted to build a temple, and that's when the prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, you can't build this temple. Instead, the Lord is going to raise up a house. He's going to give you a dynasty, and then your descendant is going to build the temple. So there's a strong connection between the temple and the covenant with David. And look down at what we see in verse 20, where the psalmist says, have regard for the covenant. So temple, covenant, uh, the, the second parts about the temple, second to last parts about the covenant. All right. So I'm trying to tell you about the chiasm here in the psalm. Uh, a chiasm being that word coming from the Greek letter chi, which is in the shape of an X. And um, the way this works is uh, the first thing corresponds to the last thing. The second thing corresponds to the second to last thing. And then within that, uh, eventually you get to the middle, and what's in the middle is the big important idea. All right. So the next thing we want I want to draw your attention to is look at, look at how in verse 10 um, the foe is scoffing and the enemy is reviling God's name. And look, look down at verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. So those, those are matching elements. And then in the very middle of this whole psalm, Verses 12 through 17 is this, this worshipful recounting of what God has done. This celebration of God's mighty acts in salvation, redemption, and creation. That's at the center of this whole thing. So, so at the center of this psalm is this praise for God. And that praise... Is, is the basis for, the catalyst for, the confident prayer that, that follows that central section. So the first part of the psalm outlines the psalmist's problem. The temple has been attacked. The middle part, the psalmist worships. And then at the end, he prays. That's, that's the basic outline. So in verses 1 through 11, we'll see the way that God's anger is smoking against his people. So look with me at Psalm 74. And we'll start in verse 1. This is a mosquito of Asaph. Um, the, the Psalms of Asaph, they start in Psalm 73. And if you just sort of glance through here, every Psalm between 73 and I think it's 82. Yeah, every Psalm from 73 to 82 is a Psalm of Asaph. And then oh, 83 is also, and then 84 starts the Psalms of Korah. So 73 through 83 are psalm, these Psalms apparently written by this guy Asaph. And what he seems to be responding to, I think, is what Gabe read about earlier in the service. So if, 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 you, if you heard that, you were here, if you heard Gabe read Second Chronicles chapter 12, it told about how this king of Egypt named Shishak, he came up against Israel to discipline Israel for their sin. And do you remember where it said, he took away all the treasures 
from the house of God. This guy, Shishak, he wasn't allowed to totally destroy Israel, but he attacked the temple. He plundered the temple. He took away all the treasures of the house of God, and then in response to that, Israel repented, and I think Psalm 74 may be reflecting that, that situation. So the question in, in Psalm 74 is in response to the way that Israel has been attacked. And the psalmist asks, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Now he's going to start off asking that, but he knows it's not forever. And, and by the end of this unit, he's going to be asking down in verse, verses 9 and 10, How long? How long? So the psalmist is, is experiencing God's discipline, and initially he thinks God has cast us off forever. He's forsaken us forever. But by the time he's worked through it a little bit, he's asking, how long? How long? And we'll get, we'll get into why he thinks it might not be forever as we continue. But he asks here in verse 1, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Uh, the, the image here literally is, why does your nose smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The, I mean, it's almost as though the Lord has gotten pepper up his nose. And the pepper up his nose is the iniquity of his people. And as a result of the sin of his people, his nose is smoking with indignation against his people. But the psalmist appeals to his compassion, and he appeals to two things that are significant for us in verse 2. One is the exodus, and the other is the building of the temple. Look at verse 2. He says, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Those two, those two terms, purchase and redeem, this, this gets at the way that by the blood of the, the Passover lamb, the blood of the sacrifice, God purchased Israel for himself to be a special possession, his own inheritance. And the psalmist is appealing to God's compassionate love for his people. And then he goes on to say, remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And, and this is getting at the way, if you remember that story at the end of 2 Samuel, the way that Mount Zion was identified as the place where the temple was to be built. So we could say the two things identified here are Redemption at the Passover, and then the temple, God's presence among his people. And those, I think, easily translate for us. So, so let's, let's just think in, in appropriate ways about, about where the psalmist is and about where we are, okay? The psalmist is experiencing God's discipline. And we experience God's discipline, don't we? I think, I think we do. I think we can see it in consequences of our actions, we can see it in the broken relationships that we all have. We can see it in the difficult interactions that we all have to endure. None of us is immune to this. I'm not immune to it. I have difficult relationships and broken interactions and very tense situations that, that, that because often because of my pride or bullheadedness or sin or stupidity I get myself into. We're all, we're all prone to this. When we experience God's discipline, the psalmist is teaching us where to go. Okay, so what's the fulfillment of the Passover, the exodus from Egypt? The cross, right? And what is the new covenant fulfillment of God taking up residence in the temple? It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
Did you hear the passage that Matt read? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So the psalmist, he's teaching us how to respond to God's discipline. I think we learn from this to go to the cross and to contemplate God's indwelling spirit in our midst. We get that from him appealing to the Exodus. Remember your congregations which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And look at what he says to the Lord in verse 3. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. So literally, the language here is lift up your steps. It's like the psalmist is urging the Lord to quickly raise and let his feet fall, to move rapidly toward the temple. This is obviously anthropomorphic imagery, right? God doesn't have a body like men. God doesn't have a nostril, you know, nose that's smoking, literally. He doesn't have feet, literally, that he's going to use to make rapid progress to the temple. But, and God knows, doesn't he, what's happened at the temple. But the psalmist is saying, come look. Go see for yourself. Look at what has happened, Lord. And then verse 3, he continues, the enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. The psalmist, think about the logic here. The psalmist knows God's purpose. God's purpose is to cause his name to, to inhabit that temple in Jerusalem and then to cause his glory to radiate out from Jerusalem, to cause his goodness to emanate out from that central spot in the middle of Israel until the, the word about the goodness of God has spread over all the earth. That's, the psalmist knows that's God's purpose. And then God's people have sinned, and God's discipline has fallen on the temple. And the psalmist is saying, well, I know, Lord, but you haven't changed your purpose. So come look at the temple. You haven't changed your purpose. Come look at the way that things are. And the implication is, come fix it. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Um... This, this word that's translated has destroyed, it's literally has caused to be evil. The enemy has caused to be evil everything. And then the word sanctuary there, that's a word that means the holy place. So where you're supposed to have holiness, you've got evil. Who did this? The enemy did it. This is exactly like what Satan did in the garden. The garden was supposed to be a holy place. The enemy came in and he caused everything in the holy place to be evil. So what's happening in the, in the holy place, in the temple, is, is like a microcosm or a small-scale version of what's happened over all the earth. And then verse 4, he continues, Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. This is imagery that clearly depicts them like ravenous beasts like lions or, or tigers or, or bears or whatever, uh, oh my, roaring, right, uh, with, with rage and with this, this uh, vicious, um, malevolent purpose. And this is taking place in, in God's meeting place, the place where there's supposed to be decorum, respectful behavior. The enemy has entered like a wild beast and roared. And then he continues there in verse 4. They set up their own signs for signs. 
So what this seems to indicate is that the enemy has removed the emblems, the things like, I mean, old, old covenant analogs to that cross right there, uh, banners perhaps, or, or symbols of God's presence that were there in the meeting place. The enemy has taken those things away and replaced those things with things that symbolize their gods and their approach to the world and their understanding of how they ought to worship. The enemy has removed Israel's signs. We see, we see this down in verse 9. We do not see our signs because, verse 4, they set up their own signs for signs. And then verse 5 seems to, uh, to pick up on this, this parallel between uh, the temple and creation. Um, it, it seems to assume that the temple is a symbol of creation. And so the enemy entering into the temple with, with, with uh, hatchets and cleavers and axes is likened here in verse 5 to uh, someone going out into a forest of trees to swing his, his axe. So verse 5, they were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. They entered the temple and they hacked up the carved wood. They took away all these things of value and the psalmist is likening it to somebody going out into the forest and, and chopping down these trees at, at, at random. Then he continues there in verse 6. All its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. So where, where they ought to have holiness, they've got evil and destruction. Where they ought to have respect, they've got these roaring wild animals. Where there ought to be beauty, what you've got are these gash marks from the hatchets and hammers and axes. Where there ought to be safety, there's fire. Look at verse 7. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Now, if, if this is set at the time of Shishak, then we know that, that it, the temple wasn't utterly destroyed. It wasn't totally burned down at that time. If it is to be understood at the time of the destruction of the temple in 586, well, the Babylonians, they burned it to the ground. They destroyed it altogether. And in verse 8, we see their destructive intent. They said to themselves, verse 8, we will utterly subdue them. Their purpose is to abuse God's people. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We don't know exactly what these meeting places were. Maybe they were places where the Israelites gathered to study the Bible or to pray together. Maybe like a precursor of the synagogue. All those places, the enemy has come through the land and set them on fire. And then the psalmist begins to complain in verse 9. He says, we do not see our signs. We talked about that with verse 4. Then he goes on to say, there is no longer any prophet and there is none among us who knows how long. Now earlier, Gabe read in Second Chronicles 12 about how at this very time, if this is right about this being uh, a response to Shishak attacking the temple, a prophet came to Rehoboam and rebuked him, right? So, so we know that there were prophets active in Rehoboam's day. If this is set at the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C., then too prophets were active, weren't they? Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem. So this is not, I don't think we're to, to understand this as a statement that prophecy has dried up and ceased 
and there, and there are no prophets whatsoever. I think there's a particular point being made here about there being no prophet, and that point is there's none among us who knows how long. So I think what the psalmist is saying is something like, you, you remember how eventually Jeremiah says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord had appointed 70 years for Babylon. And I think what the psalmist is saying here is, no prophet has yet arisen to tell us something like 70 years for Babylon. So we don't know how long this is going to last. And, and the psalmist is trying to fix this situation. There's none among us who knows how long at the end of verse 9. So he asks in verse 10, how long, O Lord? How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And then in verse 11, he knows that God can fix this. He knows that God can fix this. And what he does is, again, he, he, he envisions the Lord as, as a mighty warrior who has taken his hand and he's placed it in the fold of his garment. And so he calls on the Lord here in verse 11. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. So he knows this is what God intends to do. God doesn't intend to prosper the Babylonians. God doesn't intend to prosper the Egyptians. God is not about causing idolaters to triumph in an everlasting way. He knows God wants to triumph. God is going to reign. And so he calls on the Lord. Now let's, let's take stock of verses 1 through 11 here and think in terms of the discipline that we experience in our lives. And let's just ask ourselves, how do we respond do we respond as the psalmist models here in verses 1 through 11? What did he do? He thought about redemption. He thought about the indwelling presence of God in the temple. And then he looked at the devastation. And he sought the Lord to come and view those things sympathetically. And then he asked the Lord to restore. I think that's a, those are action steps for us. When you experience... Consequences in your life of, of, of your ways and your mistakes and so forth, we should do this. We should look to the cross, think about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we've believed, take full stock of the devastation that has been wrought, and ask the Lord to come look compassionately upon it and make it new, make it right. Worship is the solution to our problems the answer to our questions, and the catalyst for confident prayer. Look at what he does now in verses 12 through 17. Having, having seen God's discipline and, and looked it full in the face, he now appeals to God by praising the Lord. Verse 12, yet God, my king, is from of old. That's an affirmation that God is the only living and true God. God is the only king who has ever reigned. God is the only one who has ever been in charge. He is king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so that word salvation, I think it functions like a, a, a sort of umbrella banner 
over what, what is about to be enumerated, particularly in verses 13 through 15. And the reason I say that is because some people look at this stuff in verses 13 through 15, and they think it's, taught, it's reflecting ancient Near, Near Eastern mythology about creation. But the psalmist has called it salvation. So I think rather than seeing this as reflecting ancient Near Eastern creation myths, we should see this as reflecting what God did at the exodus from Egypt. So what we've got here, I would suggest to you, in verses 13 through 15, is a poetic retelling of the way that God saved his people at the exodus. Look at verse 13. You divided the sea by your might. I mean, think about that. What kind of might, what kind of power causes the waters to stand up in a heap? That's awesome. I mean, there's no football, football player that can pull that off, is there? Right? None of those football teams on television today are going to do anything like that. That is might. You divided the sea by your might. And then he goes on and he says there in verse 13, you broke the heads of the... You could translate this next word that's word rendered sea monsters. You broke the heads of the dragons on the waters. Did you know there are dragons in the Bible? There they are. You broke the... And God broke their heads. So you've got these mighty serpentine monsters that rule the, the place from which evil arises, the watery deeps, and God has crushed their heads. And, and I think the psalmist is describing what happened at, at the crossing of the Red Sea when God split the sea. And, and, and he reiterates it in verse 14. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now, um, let me just give you a couple of references. You know, maybe you want to jot these down. You can go read these later. These are other places in the Old Testament that describe the parting of the Red Sea in terms of um, a crushing of the serpent's head. So you, to see this in other places, you can look at Psalm 89, 9 and 10. You can look at Isaiah 51, 9 and 10, and Job 26, 12. In, in those three places... The parting of the Red Sea is poetically uh, presented as though what the Lord has done is he's crushed the head of the serpent. You see what the psalmist is doing? He's saying that ancient promise from Genesis 3.15, there was an anticipatory fulfillment of it at the exodus from Egypt. You know what that's pointing forward to? That's pointing to Jesus at the cross, the fulfillment of the Passover, saying, now is the ruler of this world cast out. When he, when he finally, definitively crushes the serpent's head at the cross. So I think this is really uh, significant, that, that the, the Passover is depicted in these terms as an outworking of the word of judgment that God spoke over the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And then look at verse, verse 15 of Psalm 74. He says, you split open springs and brooks. Now think about what uh, Israel needed right after they got through the Red Sea. Remember where they were? They were in the wilderness. What did they not have? They didn't have any water. Where'd they get water? God told Moses to strike the rock. And out of a rock, water flowed. I think that's what the psalmist is, is describing. Then he says, so God can make waters flow. He can also make flowing waters stop. Then he, so he says in the rest of verse 15, you dried up ever-flowing streams. What do you think that's a reference to? 
Well, they get to the border of the promised land, and there's this river that's overflowing all its banks. And the Lord says, send the priests up to the bank bearing the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as their feet hit the water, it's going to pile up in a heat and heap, and you're going to cross over on dry land. So all that stuff in verses 13 through 15 is about God's work at the exodus and then, and then the wilderness and leading up to the conquest. And, and what the psalmist is doing is recounting the mighty deeds of God and contemplating how the Lord keeps his promises. And he's praising God for these things. In verse 16 he seems to begin to think about creational realities. He says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. And, and if you go read Genesis 1, you know, when the Lord puts the sun up there in the skies, the sun is up there to rule the day and to mark times and seasons. And then he goes on, verse 17, you have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So that there are these fixed times and seasons. Summer, winter, day, and night. So the psalmist has, has basically said, God, you have the power to impose your will and to bring order to chaos. Right? Formless and void. And the Lord brings light and he contrasts it with darkness. And he imposes his will on the seasons through these things that he creates. And, Lord, there is no dragon, there is no sea monster in the watery depth that can stand against you. There is no power in heaven or on earth that can stop you, Lord. You crush the heads of the sea dragons of the watery deeps. So you see what he's doing, don't you? Verses 1 through 11, Lord, look at our need for salvation. Verses 12 through 17, Lord, you are more than adequate to do this. You are able to save. So worship is the solution to his problem. And it's the answer to his question, how long? Well, look at, look at 75 verse 2, Psalm 75 verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. How long? As long as the Lord pleases, and no longer. Worship, solution to our problem, answer to our questions, basis for confident prayer. Look at verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Um, the, the people of Israel are depicted here like a dove. You know, a dove doesn't have fangs, doesn't have claws, can't, can't protect itself. And, and this is reflecting the way that the Lord has spoken of Israel all across the Old Testament as helpless and defenseless and weak and God showed compassion on them and lifted them up and became their champion. So the psalmist is saying, don't take your dove and hand it over to the wild beasts, the nations. Why is he saying? He knows God's promises, doesn't he? Lord, you're the one who promised to make this nation 
great over all the earth. You're the one who promised to establish this Davidic king. So you're the one who's going to have to do this. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Verse 20, have regard for the covenant. Lord, you initiated this agreement. You started this relationship. You made this covenant with us. Remember it. Look to it. Have regard for it. For, verse 20, the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Um, that word violence, if you remember, uh, it was used back in um, Psalm 72. Um, Psalm 72, verse 14, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. So there's a sense in which in Psalm 74, the psalmist is still saying, Lord, we got all these hopes that are reflected in the prayers for the king from the Davidic line in Psalm 72. And those hopes don't match our reality. So what we want you to do is, is cause the king to come. Cause the king to come and make all this right. Make it where there aren't dark places that are habitations of violence. Verse 21, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. You see what the psalmist is doing? Lord, in keeping with your character, in keeping with your purposes, in keeping with what you have said you are going to do, do it. This is your cause. Defend it. How does the psalmist know that this is God's purpose? From the Bible, from what God has said. Verse 23, do not forget. Notice how we had in verse 18, remember this. And then we had in verse 19 in the middle, do not forget. And then there's that statement about the covenant in verses 20 and 21. And then verse 22, remember. And then verse 23, do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise up against you, which goes up continually. It may seem like a strange thing to do, to remind God of what's going on, but that's what the psalmist is doing here. This is a, I think this is a good way to pray. Because as we remind the Lord of what he's promised, and as we remind the Lord of justice that needs to be done, we come to identify emotionally with God. You see that happening in this psalm? The psalmist is siding with God. God emotionally. And that's an emotional transformation that comes about as a result of worship. We don't side with God unless we praise Him, unless we take Him as our King from of old. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, we are, we are hoping that what you'll do is turn from being one of God's enemies and join with the people of God. Join with those who can call confidently on the Lord, who can worship the Lord, and who side with Him emotionally. He will receive you. He will take you in if you will come to Him. He has made provision for your sin through the death of Jesus, and we would urge you to take the opportunity you have to repent of your sin and to come to Christ. And after the service, uh, Jeff encouraged me to do this. Jeff, here we go. You're influencing me, brother. Um, 
Uh, after the service, there's a guy sitting back there in the way back named Denny Burke. Wave your hand, Denny. You can go talk to Denny. You can come talk to me. You can go talk to Matt, the dude playing the piano. Um, Matt uh, Pierce, the guy that read. I'm, I'm just sort of going through the elders here. Mike France is over here. John Watson is right here. And there are a bunch of people all around you who would love to pursue a further conversation with you if you'd like to talk more about these realities, about what it is to know Christ. Take the opportunity that you have. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father, would you help us to understand, according to your word, the things that happen to us? And Lord, would you cause us to respond like Asaph when we experience your discipline? Help us to interpret it in biblical categories. Help us to respond to it by coming to you to worship you, to praise you for your mighty acts of salvation, to think again on how in in kindness and love and grace and mercy that our words don't even begin to capture. The Lord Jesus took up all our sins and suffered all our penalty and died, and you, ra- you raised him from the dead. Lord, help us to contemplate these things and be renewed and transformed and identify with you emotionally and call on you confidently to make all things new through the king from David's line, our Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.